1: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is
2: Mornings with Simi. It's very soothing. Is that your cup of tea? Like how would you classify your musical taste? I'd call mine eclectic, and what we're going to learn about this morning is that everyone's actually is kind of unique because how we perceive music individually is unique, and it turns out it has a lot to do with your childhood. I mean, doesn't everything come back to what happened to you in your childhood? So let's learn more with the help of Dr. Marcus Pierce, leader of the Music Cognition Lab at Queen Mary University of London and Honorary Professor of Neuroscience at Aarhus University. Dr. Pierce, thank you so much for joining us today. First off, do we all perceive music differently? Uh,
3: yes, I think we do, uh, depending on the uh, experience that we've had, but also individual differences that depend, uh, depend on um, you know, our individual makeup.
2: So in what way? Is it like my childhood would affect the type of musical taste I have?
3: Yeah, so it's, it's a mixture of, uh, of, I think, of your genes and, and your experience. So, On the experience side, the, the kind of music that, that you listen to uh, as, a, as a child can influence um, your your perception of music, and that there are some experiments with with very young children within the first six months or, or 12 months of, of life. If you expose them to uh, different kinds of rhythms, then that has a, a measurable impact on their um, their perception uh, of music. Which then uh, over over time that sort of um, um, flexibility decreases. Um, so so adults don't don't show that kind of effect of of experience. So. It seems like early experience, you know, within the first five or ten years of life, um, do have an, uh, an influence on our on our perception of music.
2: Really, so um, we, we can't also learn there, to are, love something later.
3: Uh, no, you definitely can. Uh, you definitely can. I mean, there's, there's 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 flexibility, I think, throughout the lifespan. But there are some things, as with speech, um, that that, that happen quite early on. Like what? Well, as, as I say, with 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 rhythm, for example. So if you're exposed to the kinds of rhythms that appear in uh, they appear a lot in um, uh, in turkish music um, and and, and, and uh, balkan music um kinds of rhythms that we, we call them non isochronous so they' don't, they don't repeat exactly Listeners uh, from those cultures perceive the, the, those rhythms very naturally, but they're quite hard for um, uh, uh, people from north America and europe um western europe to 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 perceive accurately.
2: Hmm. So when and that's we,
3: something that seems to happen quite, quite, quite early on in life.
2: Okay. So when we have, say, a taste for a particular type of music, what is it about that that appeals to us then? Is that the familiarity? Are we looking for certain notes, certain feelings?
3: I think so, so, so some of it is, is familiarity. But the interesting thing about familiarity is that, you know, we like things, we do like things that are familiar and predictable. And I think predictability is, is, is the key thing. Um, but things that are music that's, that's too predictable is 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 not interesting. It becomes boring. And we probably had this experience of, uh, of of a piece of music. You know, you, you hear it and it um, uh, it sounds uh, sounds nice. You like, it. and then you listen to it a lot. And uh, after a while, it becomes too familiar, over familiar, and, and and boring. So what we seem to to like is um, a, a degree of predictability in the music that we listen to, but also a um, a degree of unpredictability, a degree of surprise that, that makes the music interesting. And this goes across you know other, other areas of um, conceptual experience as well. The question then is, what what is it that that makes music predictable?
2: Okay. What is it that makes music predictable?
3: I think think it's it's the experience that that, that we have of music. So um, when we're um, growing up in in, in a musical culture, the the, the music that that we hear, and often this is kind of incidental, um, so it's music on the radio or or music um, that, that we hear at home, leads us to kind of internalize the structure of the music. In the same way that we learn the grammar of, of language, we also internalize uh, the grammar of, of the music that we're exposed to. And so we have an, like uh, a model in our heads of, of the structure of, of the music in the same way that we have an internal model of, of the grammar of language, uh, natural languages that we speak. Can you measure and, that? Yeah, this is what we do in experiments. So we, we, we run experiments where we ask people um, uh, to, do, you know, to listen to music and, and, and answer questions. And then we can see how predictable uh, the, the music is using a, ver- a variety of different methods. So we can look at the reaction times because more predictable things people respond to faster, or we can look at how their brain responds. And there are particular brain responses uh, that, that indicate uh, when someone is surprised by the music.
2: Hmm. So when you're measuring kind of the impact of music on the brain, what do you see? Like, how does the brain react to music?
3: So one of the measures that, that, that we use is electroencephalography or um, magnetoencephalography, which um, this is this is where we we record the electrical responses that, that of the brain on on the scalp, and we we use this for music a lot because it uh, it gives us a very good temporal resonance. so we can measure very fast responses. Whereas something like fMRI, for example, which measures where blood flows in the brain, it takes the blood a certain amount of time to get to where it's going, so it's a, it's a uh, a slower response, um, and what we see with electroencephalography are, are quite fast responses. So when a note uh, plays in, in, in the music, um, within the first sort of 200 milliseconds after that note has, has been heard, that the brain responds with a, a signal um, that, that, the, that reflects how predictable that note was.
2: So we are that good at that. Your, our brain really does respond to Do we respond to speech this way? Is, is music unique in that way?
3: No, I don't think so. So there, there are similar, I mean, they're different brain responses, but similarly fast to, to speech. But we can distinguish the responses to music from responses to, to speech.
2: So what do we think it is about music, Dr. Pierce, that makes the brain respond in this way?
3: It, I think it's, it's this internal model that, 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 we've, that we've learned. Through experience and the interesting thing is it might be different for, um, for you uh, to you know for, uh, uh, than it is from someone from, from a different culture that's, that's learnt a, a different model and so that means that something that's surprising for you in music might not be surprising for uh, someone from a different musical culture and, and vice versa um, one of the, the interesting things I think about about music is that it's, um, uh, th- th- this, this, this model depends on um, memory so you have to memorize the um, music that we've listened to in the past, but also the music that we're currently listening to in, in, in short-term memory. And um have to make comparisons between the music that, that we're listening to now and the, the, uh, the notes that we've heard in, in, in the past. Um, then whether, whether the, the, the note is expected or unexpected has an impact on our uh, experience of, of pleasure. As I said, intermediate degrees of, of predictability are, uh, seem to be more pleasurable. Huh. Like something that's not too complex, but also not too simple. So music kind of brings together all these different aspects, um, so you know, uh, memory and, and um, kind of similarity comparisons and pleasure. So lots of different psychological functions um, are probed when we listen to a piece of music.
2: Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Not at all. And you thought it was so simple. There's just some music you like and some you don't, but oh no, no, it goes much deeper than that. That's Dr. Marcus Pierce, leader of the Music Cognition Lab at Queen Mary University of London and honorary professor of neuroscience at Aarhus University. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with our Scott chance We're going to talk about a story that, boy, sure got people worked up yesterday. So we talked about it yesterday morning. Yeah. Right, Scott? And this it, is about
4: Wendy's. Yes, and then, of course, I I actually had several people bring it up to me throughout the day, like, oh, I love that Wendy's story. How about Wendy's? It's crazy that they're going to do that. Are they really going to do that? And the thing that they had been talking about doing, at least that we had heard them saying, was that they were going to, like, people were comparing it to Uber, that they were going to, end. Uh, Start testing out surge Surge pricing, pricing. right, which Uber does when it's busier during rush hour, you pay more for an Uber. And so Wendy's was saying, or at least the way that it was interpreted, was that during busier times, things would get more expensive. And one of the quotes had even said, up to a dollar more for a burger – based on when you're going to the drive-thru. Now, the story went everywhere.
2: Oh yeah, it didn't take, all day long, I was watching it spread faster, and, and I thought, this is a nightmare for Wendy's. Totally, and it felt like, you know, people were talking about, are we
4: gonna start seeing this in other places? I actually thought maybe we would start seeing it in other places, but now the one of the, a spokesperson from Wendy's has responded, saying, to clarify, Wendy's will not implement surge pricing when raising prices when demand is highest. We didn't use that phrase, And we don't intend to implement that practice. Instead, they want to call it dynamic. Of course, they do. Pricing. I know. I know. But so they're trying to focus on like they're put. They're spending all this money to put in these digital. Um, order boards, right, that they can change any time. So someone can say, oh, we want to feature the Baconator. Put the Baconator up there.
2: They're using the words like flexibility and dynamic pricing, those kinds of things. But what it really, every time, Scott, and you know this, people know this, every time you have seen or heard a company use the phrase dynamic pricing, what it really means is we're going to charge you more.
4: Yeah. It means that they want the ability to change prices when when it benefits them. When it benefits them, they say, oh, these reader boards that we're going to have, they're going to be able to let us like feature something that's better for the customer and will allow us to upsell, to drive sales. And they also say, I thought this was interesting, Simi, that they could uh, change and offer value offers to customers more easily, particularly in the slower times See? of the day. This is how they're going to suck people in. Yeah, well, that's right. But I think that I mentioned yesterday that it kind of feels like this could work like happy hour. Right. Like lots of bars do right, that. You where, saw this coming, Scott. You nailed this. Yeah. We're like bars. You know, you go to a bar and a beer is, I don't know, five dollars. And then when it's slower, like three to five in the afternoon, they lower the price of the beer to three fifty, right? And that's they could be doing that. But you to the point, it's like this just allows them to raise the price all the other times during
2: the day and tell us
4: that they're, it's lower at a certain time.
2: All they're doing here is softening the blow. Yes. And if they, if you're the CEO of McDonald's or Burger King or you know Tim Hortons, silently in your head right now, you're saying. Thanks, Wendy's, for taking one for the team. Oh, absolutely. Because if Wendy's gets away with this and it works then you can bet other places will do it too. Well, yeah, and like you say, they got destroyed on
4: social media and all over the internet yesterday. That didn't happen to McDonald's, but yes, McDonald's may be the beneficiary of this. Oh,
2: every fast food place will be the beneficiary. Think about it. We didn't know or we hadn't heard of this dynamic pricing five, six years ago, but now we hear it and we see it everywhere. So whether it's airfares, oh, well, yeah, the price is gonna go up because it's busier at that time. Going to the movies, they use dynamic pricing. Hotel. Hotels Hotels use dynamic. Hello, Taylor Swift concert. Yeah. Ticketmaster uses. So now it is everywhere. And this is just dynamic pricing creep.
4: Yeah, I think that we can expect dynamic pricing creep to be a real thing, you know, in, in every industry as as it comes. So, yeah, you just got to buy your things at the slower times of the day, Simi, when they're or, giving you a break. Or <laughs> just not buy things there. That's true, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, that's been an interesting story. And then I'm also looking forward to our conversation about road rage.
2: Okay. So, John Strait was super honest with us when we talked about this earlier. And one, Scott, how would you rate yourself as a driver? Average or above average? <laughs> I think that I am average. I think that I am average. I applaud average. your honesty. Yeah, honest, I would say like, the
4: same thing about myself. I mean, and I know, I, because I know that most people think that they're a really good driver, and then I drive with them, and I'm like, are you even paying attention to what is happening right now? Yeah. Like, if I, I have had a few, I got a speeding ticket maybe a month ago. Like, if I was a good driver, oh, really? I wouldn't have gotten that ticket. You know, like that's I, I the, this is my favorite. It's the people who are like, I'm a really good driver. And I'm like, well, how many speeding tickets have you gotten? Oh, a ton. How many accidents have you been in? Oh, a ton. Well, then you're not a good driver. Like if a, a good what qualifies a good driver is safe, like obeys the rules of the road.
2: I feel like we're like, getting Scott all worked up here, aren't we? <laughs> right. Yes.
4: But the people are like, oh, just because I don't follow the rules doesn't mean I'm not a good driver. Yes, it does. The rules that's are there for literally a literally what that means. Yes, it does. So
2: 68 <laughs> percent of the people in this survey said they believe they are an above-average driver, but then they got asked a whole bunch of questions about things that they do. And you're right; they change lanes without signaling, they turn without signaling, they speed, or they go too slow, or they tailgate. And you're thinking, none of that is what a good driver would do. So we are going to talk to the company that did this survey a little bit later on in the show to get really dig into this. But it's also about angry drivers. Would you consider yourself to be an? I get a, I am sometimes. I will admit this. A frustrated driver, but I realize that my going to work work. work at this hour of the morning has ruined me for being on the road when there are more cars. I
4: completely relate to that. Yes. And I definitely would say I'm a frustrated driver. Like my biggest pet peeve is being in the fast
2: lane and there's somebody in front of me in the fast lane who won't move over. Okay. Do you know the worst area for that? I will tell you this. This is my experience. Highway 99, southbound, After the tunnel. So, between the tunnel and that first exit in South Surrey, which is either the Crescent Beach one or the 152nd one, that, because it's two lanes. Right. That area is the worst stretch, I'm saying it for people who are not pulling over when they shouldn't pull over. Let I, people go by you. Yeah, and I, I think it
4: depends on where you drive. I also find Highway 1 eastbound, you know, the Burnaby Lake stretch to sure, be but pretty bad. Sure,
2: there's multiple lanes there. There's yes, more than two lanes there. But That w-
4: stretch of Highway 99 only has two lanes. Sure. One of the lanes there is an HOV lane, and I have seen people, not with multiple passengers, like one person in a vehicle, use the HOV lane to go around the slow person in the fast lane. Those so, people, not good drivers.
2: <laughs> but if you ask them, we'll sure. tell you that they're a good you driver. You bet they will. Okay, so we're going to talk more about this, and we would love to get that conversation started. Simi at cknw.com. What is the, the thing that you admit to doing? Scott was honest about that. He speeds. I would say that I probably also am a little bit of a lead foot in that regard, so I will admit that as well. Scott, thank you. What about you? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn.
5: And good morning, Simeon. Can I just say I am totally shocked. I'm still picking myself up off the floor at the news about the World Cup.
2: Oh, are you? you are you the BC. only one?
5: <laughs> I mentioned my sarcasm habit. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks to the mayor of Toronto, here, Olivia Chow. She came out this week and told local taxpayers that, you know, she supports the World Cup. Coming to Toronto, she wants to make it clear, but she thinks it's only fair to tell taxpayers in Toronto that it's going to cost $80 million more than they were told initially. So there's an overrun. Big surprise. Um, Gee, I wonder if there's going to be an overrun here in British Columbia on what we were told. That thought, semi occurred to a bunch of reporters in Victoria yesterday and uh, a whole media scrum descended on the minister in charge, Lana oh, Popham. This has been an ongoing
2: thing, though, Vaughn, right? Like from the very beginning, that was the reason why the B.C. government said no to begin with. Like, yep. we know it's going to be expensive. So just tell
5: us what this is. Uh, that would be uh, the sort of thing that is reasonable. And a full credit to John Horgan, he said he took a look at the contract from FIFA, which is one of these grasping international organizations that is a rule unto itself. And he went, it's a blank check and we're not interested. And he said no. Well, then everybody turned around. uh, The usual suspects, I think, descended on the government talking about the enormous benefits to be reaped uh, from hosting the World Cup. And the New Democrats turned around and they now support it. But the question to Puffin yesterday was, how much? You know, if Toronto is going to be paying more, uh, what's it going to be here in BC? Well, it's reassuring to discover, uh, Simi, that uh, the BC government does have a ballpark estimate. Oh, do they? How much? Yes, yes. uh, yes. The government, Simi, the government wouldn't walk (laughs) into one of these things without a business plan and some idea what it was going to cost. You cynic. <laughs> of course, they have a ballpark estimate. They know. It's been discussed, no doubt, at Treasury Board, which is the branch of the finance ministry that actually scrutinizes government spending. So uh, she disclosed that. Yes, yes, sir. We have a ballpark estimate. So, uh, hmm, so a reporter asked, uh, what is it? A fair question. You know, have you got enough journalism training? You know the follow-up, right? What is it? Oh, she can't tell us that. She can't share the number with the public. No, why would you want to
2: share a number? Why would you want to do that?
5: That would give it all away, wouldn't it? So anyway, um, the BC uh, United Party spotted something in the budget, uh, way down in the fine print. Uh, Remember, we've been talking about those giant contingency funds that the a New Democrats set aside in the budget. There's $3 oh, yeah, billion dollars unallocated. And in the fine print, some of that money will go to pay the cost of hosting the World Cup.
6: Oh. So we got $3 billion.
5: I can't possibly exceed that. Even a cynic like me wouldn't expect that. So I guess at some point we'll get the price tag. It would be nice if they told us before the events arrive here than after. But <clears throat> again, I, I sort of look over the... What we have been told, uh, oh, the stadium needs a renovation. Uh, We need to install, because FIFA insists on it, uh, actual grass and get rid of the artificial turf. and I'm told we have to find place to store the actual grass when it's not in use. So, you know, it.
2: it's expensive. Uh, Anybody say, who's watched the documentary about FIFA on Netflix, which I highly recommend to people, you, we are not, we're dealing with the Rolls-Royce of organizations here. There is nothing well, on the cheap that that about was
5: this. The Olympic. I always thought that was the International Olympic Committee. That was an imperial world unto itself, which when you're decide you're going to host the Olympics, they tell you how you're going to run things. Oh, that's FIFA, yeah. But it turns out FIFA is even worse than that. And, and I, I was looking through uh, my files uh, that I've been keeping on this one, Simi, because I know this is going to be one of those gifts.
7: Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little
2: or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
5: Keeps on giving. The New York Times had a fascinating piece the other day, just, just this year. All of that, all of those attempts by the United States to actually convict FIFA officials for
2: corruption—yeah—virtually
5: all those cases have collapsed. Um, even though, you know, that's the theme of a lot of the coverage that FIFA FIFA is a world unto itself and, uh, you know, has its own view of what is and is not acceptable, uh, apparently all those uh, cases in the United States, uh, owing to flaws in American law and overreach by American authorities, uh, most of those cases are in danger or have already collapsed. So, but, you know... uh, uh, another thing that jumps out of the files on this, Simi, is it's not just Toronto where the city government has been more open. Uh, Seattle, Bob Macken of Breaker News has done uh, several stories on the fact that the contracts are open down in Seattle. The details are a lot more open uh, down there. Far more open than we've ever been up here. And Simi, uh, if I were to ask you, What official in the current NDP government (laughs) preached the importance of openness and transparency around the 2010 Olympics? What would your guess be?
2: Well, first of all, I love your sarcasm, and don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise, because I'm going to go out on a limb here, and understanding how irony works, I'm going to say David Eby. Good
5: guess. Good guess. (laughs) Somebody actually sent me actual quotes from David Eby, on CKNW, of course. Back when he was David Eby, crusading lawyer and critic of governments, saying it was really important that you know you're going to host a major international event like the Olympics, you be open and transparent to the people of British Columbia about what it's going to cost, and you do it up front. You don't wait until the celebration is over to hand the bill over to taxpayers. So that was what this, that was then. This is now. Uh, the New Democrats still have plenty of time to get that ballpark estimate out and then tell us all the other things we need to know about the cost so that we can enjoy the celebration without having sticker shock after it's over.
2: Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun because we're trying to figure out more about some of the things that the Premier kind of just says, Vaughn, right? And then you try to find out what's actually really going on there.
5: Yeah. So the premier is, uh, was out uh, this week talking about the UK doctors recruitment. Right. So British Columbia's got these big billboards, which um, son has one of them in the paper today. Uh, this is the deal. Uh, you know, we are saying this is a great place to come and practice medicine. And David Eby's giving an example of BC's aggressive efforts. Uh, to get more doctors, and you know, doctors in the UK are unhappy, Uh, they're not happy with the government there, so it's a good time to be recruiting. Um, It's always good to hear what the government thinks is important about what it's doing, and that was reported. However, I give credit to my colleague Katie DeRosa at the Vancouver Sun. She phoned a broker who actually does uh, attract doctors from other countries and sets them up here, And the broker told her that, you know, it's all very well for British Columbia to be doing this, but, stories in the Vancouver Sun today, British Columbia is one of the toughest jurisdictions in the world for a doctor from some other country to relocate to. There are so many hurdles that a UK doctor now has to jump through that, as the broker said, it is not just a matter of getting onto the plane, that, the doctors have tried to do it, if anybody in the UK decides to talk to them, they're not going to be happy with what they hear. They, uh, Yes, British Columbia is a wonderful place to practice medicine, and yes, uh, we're offering a lot of money, double, according to the government, but this is not a great place to come and try to practice medicine because there are so many bureaucratic hurdles that, despite the government's many promises, have not yet been removed. Hmm,
2: that's so interesting because I think that's also doctors of BC, right? Because they have yeah. to get permission, or I guess the college. for Doctors here have to also work towards yeah. making that happen.
5: Yeah, and the federal government is part of the problem. And we've heard already that Canadians who go to medical schools outside Canada and get a, a degree can't find residency uh, positions back here in Canada. There's a whole range of obstacles, but you know, it wouldn't take very many doctors to get here from the UK and go through the experience of actually how difficult it is to actually practice. For word to get back to the UK, forget it, right? It's, it's a trap. So I, I found that quite interesting. Um, on another healthcare matter, Simi, if you don't mind, you and I talked earlier this week about the implications for BC of the new federal pharmacare program. Yes, that's so right. So I had a chat with Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday and he said a couple of things. He said from what he's seen so far from Ottawa and his understanding of how it will work, he sees no reason why BC will lose any control over pharmacare, which is a made in BC program. Dix will still be, a, be able to add drugs to the list of things that are covered. He'll still be able to tell pharmacists uh, that they can start dispensing. He We can add and subtract things. Uh, You may remember those MPIC, the controversy over that. Uh, He said, yes, it'll be subject to negotiation with Ottawa. But he said his understanding of the way it it will work is that Ottawa will simply become the funding source first in line. So where drugs are covered by the province, say 50% or 70%, which is the case with some, the federal government will top that up to 100%, and they'll have a list of agreed upon drugs that they'll do that for. So, diabetic medicine, right. contraceptives, and all that. But it was interesting to talk to Dix. He said, You know, um, Alberta wants to opt out, another province wants to opt out, you know, that's their choice. But he said, From what he's seen so far, he sees no reason why British Columbians should be concerned that this is going to impair provincial government autonomy in managing pharmacare. And in fact, he says he thinks Ottawa will take some direction from BC in terms of what works and what doesn't work with pharmacare, it's one of the best programs in the country.
2: Okay, here's what I don't understand, Vaughn, about this. Yes, I saw these two, I saw NDP leader Jagmeet Singh talking about how he believes the provinces that are concerned, uh, they'll likely opt in eventually. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Why, why didn't you talk to them ahead of time? If you knew that a few provinces already had this, why not talk to them, get them on board, figure out the best way to do this, and then negotiate from a place of strength with the federal government and say, I've already talked to them. Here's it's all done. Here's all you have to do. Like show some leadership.
5: Yeah, no, he's actually an MP from British Columbia too. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes act like it, but yeah, he could have taken Adrian Dix down there with him and said, "Hey, look, uh, British Columbia's already got all this figured out. Uh, Opting out Alberta is Alberta, right? Like, of course, yeah. Quebec for their own reasons. I'm sure Quebec will opt out. They always do, right? And they'll have their own program, but they'll still get the federal funding." That was the one thing Dick said is subject to negotiation. He said if Ottawa is putting more money into coverage of some drugs and pharmaceuticals on the list, that he hopes and expects that British Columbia will get that money as well on a per capita basis. And he said that will be subject to negotiation and the negotiations haven't started yet. you know he's holding back the possibility that there'll be some wrestling with Ottawa before BC gets its fair share. But I was struck, given Dix's in-depth knowledge of healthcare programs and how they work, uh, it was a pretty good briefing yesterday for the news media on why BC is not likely to opt out and why BC is generally encouraged uh, that this new program at the federal level, is a good thing for British Columbia as well.
2: Mm -hmm. So interesting. All right, Vaughn, thank you.
5: Thanks. Bye-bye, Simi.
2: That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. This
1: is Mornings with Simi.
8: Jam Master Jay, Jason Mazel. From the rap group Run DMC was gunned down here about nine fifteen tonight. Jam Master Jay knew the absolute heights of the hip hop world. Oh
2: man, I remember this so vividly. It has been more than twenty years since a brazen shooting in the studio of Run DMC's Jam Master Jay. Do you remember this story? I mean, there were even witnesses. To this happening, and yet it took years to get to this point where two men have finally been brought to trial on charges of killing him. Now, those two have now been found guilty. But it's been a long process of learning what actually happened in this case. And boy, have there ever been twists and turns. Now, David Thigpen is the director of undergraduate programs at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and the author of Jam Master Jay, The Heart of Hip Hop. Great book that can explain a lot about this case. And David joins us now to talk about it. Thanks for being here.
8: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: Why did this story take so long to get to this point, David? What happened?
8: Well, that, that, that is a great question. Um, you know, yeah, it is. It is kind of a terrible thing because there were um, several eyewitnesses when the uh, shooting happened in Jay's studio. Um, apparently, um, uh, NYPD, I think, um, was not able to get anyone to uh, cooperate. Um, likely because the witnesses were um uh scared that they would uh there'd be retaliation against them, that they would be they would be next. Uh so there were um continuous um kind of uh, uh, roadblocks and, and delays uh in this case and, and it finally added up to uh to, to you know, twenty years.
2: And what is so fascinating about Jam Master J in this case here, because it was kinda of like public persona versus what we learned about the private persona during this case didn't
8: it yes yeah absolutely so um, uh, it was it was not known to most um, uh, people that uh, Jay was apparently um, dabbling in uh, um, the sales sale drugs um, it was known that that he was under some financial um, uh, pressure and um, part of that had to do with Jay's personality. And, and as, I, as I wrote in the book, um, Jay had lots and lots of friends, um, and he had lots and lots of, of people that he uh, tried to take care of, uh, in addition to his own family. He had old friends that he provided things for, and, and many of them did not not have a lot um uh you know he grew up in in, in hollis queens um uh you know sort of a, a middle classish um uh part of uh new york but people didn't have a lot of money and for instance you know jay jay would buy his friends you know jewelry he bought what one old friend a uh, uh a car when, when jay started making money so so he didn't manage his own money well and, and apparently there was there was some he was having some financial pressures and um this opportunity came to make a lot of money on a cocaine deal. Unfortunately, that is what went wrong. And, and that, that is, is uh, how he was uh, you know, finally killed.
2: Right. And after all this time, we're finally learning about this. So what did go wrong? Who did this?
8: Okay. So, um, so this is a really sad part of the story. Um, um, two people that he knew, um, uh responsible for killing him and um and the uh the, the young man that the uh, court believes was the trigger man uh was his his godson uh his name is carl jordan uh jr and uh the jordan um, family um lived uh, across the street um, from uh J. Master j's family at at one point and the, the two families were, were were very close uh so so this is this is uh, really sad that it would, it would, um, uh, you know, the person responsible for it would be that close to him. And the other person, um, uh, man named uh, uh, Ronald, um, uh, nicknamed Tenard, last name Washington. Um, he was an individual from the neighborhood uh, as well um, and uh, had known Jay since since they were uh, kids. Uh, and I think, I believe, I believe, they both went went to um, uh, school together. Um, So they knew they all knew each other really well. And so it's just a terrible thing that that this is how it would would end up. And and you can't can't help but think that, you know, Jay, a really nice guy, just a really nice guy. Everybody liked him. Uh, Jay was really betrayed in the worst way by by his by his friends.
2: Yeah. Was there any remorse here? Like there clearly was there. There was like a, a cloud of silence here, too, wasn't there? A
8: code of silence yeah uh, yeah absolutely absolutely right and, and um you know um as far as remorse i think i think if there was any remorse on the part of the two killers they never expressed it um and and you know they were they were both kind of kind of uh, tough guys and, and i know i know um uh, ronald uh, washington the guy they call tenard um he had a reputation uh, in Hollis, Queens, as what they call a, a stickup guy, and he he always carried a weapon. Um, he he was known to have uh, um, shot people and and gotten away with it. So so everybody was 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 afraid of him. Um, and uh, you know Carl Carl Jordan uh, Jr. the one that they called um, L- Little D uh, wanted to be a, a rapper. Wanted to get into the music business. Um, uh, was not really successful, uh, so maybe he had some frustrations. Uh, and when they learned and what they believed that that Jay had was going to cut them out of a drug deal that they hoped to be a part of, in which they would have made a lot of money, they apparently got mad, and that that caused them to go up to the studio and and, and shoot Jay. That, that's what we have learned. So far
2: oh that is just awful when you think about all of that that's what it kind of came down to
8: yeah it, it really really is and 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 it was you know just kind of a terrible terrible uh, uh, betrayal and, um, and and I should also say that um, you know Jay as a as a neighborhood guy growing up in Hollis, Queens also um, all his friends were were kind of either afraid or didn't um, talk to police when the time came so uh, The police investigation, uh, police may have may have known that those were two likely suspects, but they were not arrested until 2020. And that that's that's really terrible, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I'm yeah. I can't I can't I can't say that that I I would I would say that that, that NYPD did the greatest job here because because those two names uh, were floated as as uh, possible assailants many many years ago, and uh, and they were they were it was never never acted upon. So. So that that that, that's a shame, and you know, yeah, Jay, just the nicest guy, a great innovator as as a musician, uh, um, took care of his family, took care of a lot of friends, and when it when it got down to it, nobody was there for him, and so that's why we're we're his stories finally unraveling, and uh, just just terrible.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for telling us about it. We appreciate that.
8: Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much.
2: That's David Thigpen, who's a director of undergraduate journalism at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of California. He's also written a great book called Jam Master Jay, The Heart of Hip Hop. And what a sad, tragic story that is that this artist, this musician who looked out for so many other people, nobody was looking out for him. It took more than 20 years to solve his murder, even though it seems like everybody knew exactly who had done it and even why. Oh, sad story. Ah, the bank of mom and dad. It is necessary these days for people in order to get on that property ladder. Or Scott Shantz joins us now. I mean, I, th- I think it's just, that's the way it is. I absolutely agree that, you know, as people
4: are growing and wanting to buy housing, which is like the most expensive thing ever in the whole world, uh, what other option do you have other than to go to people who have generational wealth, who have had, you know, 30, 40 more years sure. than you have had to build money for a down payment. I mean, it used to be that you could scrimp and save and afford a down payment, but now, I mean, like, it's almost impossible. So yes, more and more and more people are going to the bank of mom and dad. And that does seem like a really great thing because it's like, hey, this is family. We'll keep it in the family. Maybe it's an inheritance that you were gonna get anyways. But it's not without its risks, Simi, as I learned from talking to Sarah McCullough. She's a certified financial planner and has coached many, many people through these type of uh, bank of mom and dad situations. And, of course, my first question for her was, this is all for housing, or at least it seems that way, or are there other reasons that people are going to the bank of mom and dad?
1: I think it's happening for a variety of reasons. It's always happened for a variety of reasons. I've been advising for 20 years, so this is not totally new. I think maybe what's new is, is the amount of parents who are considering this and possibly the amount of, the number of kids who are asking, and so it can happen if uh, there's credit card debt or line of credit debt. Maybe they the kids go to the parents and say, "Can we pay you back? Right? Could you give us ten thousand? We'll pay off the credit card, and maybe we'll pay you back instead of the bank." Or maybe there's just no discussion about payback. So sometimes it's not just helping for a house that hasn't been purchased yet. Sometimes it's clearing debt that's already happened. Uh, Sometimes it's helping with ongoing bills, uh, maybe a car payment, maybe there's a grandchild in in sports. So I think it's happening more for ongoing expenses.
4: Are more people going to the bank of mom and dad than were, say, 20 years ago?
1: I think there has been an increase, yes. Certainly there were more parents contributing down payments and the amount contributed had also gone up.
4: What are the consequences to some of the banks? You know, the bank of mom yes. and dad. What <laughs> what happens if kids go to parents? And I think in most cases, parents will be as generous as they as they can afford yes. to be. Parents want to help their kids. We say we would do anything for our kids. I know my parents feel that way. Does it put them at risk? Are you seeing that yes. that more senior citizens and uh, like retirees are putting their retirement at risk or finding themselves financially insecure because they're trying to help their kids out? What does that look like
1: yes so that is that is what's happening for some families is that the parents are doing this and they don't have a full financial picture of their own um to let them know like this really isn't affordable or if you do this today you are going to have to sell or downsize your home in 15 years we don't we don't know that because today as you said, today we're focused on helping our kids. Today maybe we want our kids to be in a home and not pay rent or or we want to help them clear that credit card debt because the interest is so high. And so we're we're doing that in-the-moment thing and we're not really looking at our own financial stability. So the parents aren't necessarily stable. And then from the child's perspective, it's not really clear to them whether their lifestyle is affordable. So if we talk about parents, you know, clearing off debt for a child, they didn't have to think about, well, how did we get that debt in the first place? Where were we overspending? How can we make choices proactively to not land in this situation again? Right? So that, that gift, that help has kind of stopped all of that thinking for the child because the problem solved and we just carry on.
4: Are we going to see more of this in the coming years? Are we going to see more people going to the bank of mom and dad in the future?
1: I think we are. I think it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it needs to be very, I think it needs to be done with more knowledge and more intention and more long-term intention. Parents need to understand their own financial position. Kids need to understand their own financial position better and what's affordable for them, like, how are they making choices? Um, and, And the parents, as I say, need to be more financially stable because the reality is the parents can't be there forever.
4: That's Sarah McCullough. She's a certified financial planner and has coached many people through these bank of mom and dad situations. And I will say, Simi, though I am extremely grateful for the bank of mom and dad in my own life, the last thing I want is to have to be taking (laughs) care of them because I borrowed too much and now I have to support their lifestyle.
2: Uh, first of all, it's an honor to look after your parents, Scott.
4: Uh, absolutely. And I would love to give of <laughs> my time. Because I'm at the
2: age where I tell my children that. That's right. it. I was like, I've spent a lot of years looking after you and you are now going to return the favor at some no point. No question. But also, okay, on a more serious note, it is frustrating for parents who are thinking about being the bank of mom and dad, because there is no more natural progression to how this works. There is no more sell our house, find something good to downsize into and then we can pass that on and help our kids out. There is nothing for us to downsize into. Right. That unless is you wanna, missing from the market.
4: Yeah. Unless you want to move like out to Chilliwack, you know, which I think in a lot of cases that's not reasonable no, either. You'd like to your stay in the neighborhood, stay nearby. Yeah. yeah. You
2: stay nearby and you want to move into something smaller and guess what? Can't find it. It's not totally. there.
4: Totally. Yeah. Very difficult. Glad to have the help though.
2: Yes. Yeah. Scott. <laughs> he says, mom, so, dad. So
4: appreciative. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Thank you for that, Scott. Got it. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi.
5: What is your problem, man? Do you know how to f***ing drive? No. What? No, I don't know how to drive. What are you talking about, you
9: psycho? You don't know how to drive? Not
0: everybody knows how to do
9: everything.
2: <laughs> how would you rate your driving skills? According to a new survey from Polera, 86% of drivers rate themselves as average or above average. Now, come on, take a drive anywhere these days. Does it seem to you like the drivers out there on the road are average or above average? Kind of makes me chuckle just saying that, actually, because of course we are not. Now, I'm going to include myself in that because I wouldn't call myself above average. I'll be honest. I have moments where I lose my patience. So we're going to try to make this about honesty today. What are you willing to admit about your driving skills? What do you do that you know you should not be doing when you're driving. Send me at cknw.com. I want you to think about that for a moment, because right now we are going to chat with Dan Arnold, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at Polara. Dan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. This survey required quite a level of personal honesty, I think.
9: Yeah. And in some respects, I think the survey is maybe more about honesty than reality. Usually in the survey business, we're trying to figure out what's what's happening here is more about how people feel and how they rate their own driving skills and what they're willing to admit. And as you, as you mentioned off the top, not many people are willing to admit that they're below average drivers. Uh, Only 1% of people actually said I'm below average. Uh, It was 2% in BC. So maybe British Columbians a little more honest (laughs) in that respect. But uh, yeah, not a lot of people are willing to say, like, I'm a below average driver. And I mean, the way math works is if there's people that are above average, there have to be people who are below average, right?
2: Yeah. So maybe it's not about honesty so much as it is about our delusions of grandeur and our driving skills. Because then when you actually asked people, what do they do? These do not sound like the actions of above average drivers.
9: Yeah, so we we tested about 10 or 12 different bad driving habits. We wanted to see what pissed people off. We also wanted to see what people are willing to admit they did. And you've got about two-thirds of people who are willing to admit they do one of these things that are bad driving habits. What was really interesting, though, is the people who said, I'm an above-average driver, were actually more likely to admit doing these things. They're more likely to say they speed. They're more likely to say they talk on their cell phone while they're driving. What? So I don't know if it's be- <laughs> I, Yeah, so I, I don't know if they just think, like, I'm such a good driver that... You know, I can, I can do speed this with a hand on my cell phone and then it's not a problem. Maybe that's what's going on here, which is, you know, obviously part of the problem. Uh, if people are saying like, oh, yeah, I know the conditions are icy, but I'm such a good driver that I can just you know, speed around that corner there and still handle it. Right.
2: I think, Dan, that you exactly just hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. People feel like they are the exception to the rule. Right. There. I'm a good driver. I can do this because I'm a good driver. It's everybody else that is the problem
9: yeah I think it's it's just human nature in general I mean that's why people uh you know throw out their back because they're lifting things that are too heavy for what they realistically can do, but they think oh i I can handle it i'm uh I'm a pro i uh, used to weightlift in uh high school <laughs> so uh, I think it's just a a case of you know human beings being human beings and you know assuming that they are better than when you know reality they are
2: okay so of these above average drivers self professed above average drivers forty five percent admit to driving too fast. Uh, Let's see, 9% said they don't signal when changing lanes or turning. I don't even know how you can consider yourself a a good driver if that's what you're doing. Uh, 8% don't let people merge in. 7% admit to talking on their cell phone while driving. And these are the people who say they are good drivers. 6% say they tailgate other vehicles. 4% said they cut people off. This is very alarming, Dan.
9: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is, this is the people who are willing to admit doing these things too, right? I mean, you might have a bit of a, a bias where people are not willing to admit that they're doing things that they consider to be bad driving habits. So the actual number might even be higher than this in reality. But again, if you look at this list, overall, you've got about two thirds of people who admit to doing one of the things on this list. And you know, most of it is just people who say I'm I'm driving too fast. But yeah, for things like talking on your cell phone, if 7% of people are willing to admit doing that, that's a lot of cars on the road where people are talking on their cell phone, right? Well, because I I wouldn't be
2: admitting to doing that.
9: Yeah, yeah, it could be more than that even. And I was actually uh, driving uh, the other day and I saw somebody who was like reading a newspaper, which is, I guess, the traditional version uh, of uh, a pre-cell phone, but uh, still very (laughs) unsafe to be looking at a newspaper while you're trying to drive down the road. Right, on the
2: one hand, you're like, hey, great, you're reading a newspaper. (laughs) On the other, you're thought... Don't do it behind the wheel of a car. <laughs> Not the place to do it. So you also looked at anger-inducing driving habits by region. And I just want to touch on this for a moment because they were different. It, sounds, it seems like depending on which province you live in, different things make you angry.
9: Yeah. So we, we tested across these, these 10 or 12 different bad driving habits, which ones make you angry when you see other people doing this and everywhere in the country, uh, number one was people who blow through stop signs or red lights. That was the one that got the most people angry. Um, But then we see some differences after that In, in British Columbia, number two on the list, was people who don't properly signal when they're changing lanes. That was usually down kind of four or five, six in other provinces. So, you know, British Columbians may be a little bit more upset by people who aren't signaling. Um, after that, you get tailgators, people who speed up when you try to pass them, and then people who are on their cell phone uh, while they're driving were the top five in British Columbia for pet peeves that maybe are causing a little bit of road rage out there.
2: Okay, I agree, though, that that not signaling. I get a ton of emails from people on that every time we talk about driving situations. That is definitely a big one. So 10% of people in BC said that makes them so angry, and that was at the uh, top end of the list there. Also, not letting people merge in, which is so dangerous because it causes more road rage and it causes more problems. That was pretty steady right across the country in all provinces. It was like almost 10% of people say they don't let people merge in
9: yeah a lot of people uh, are willing to admit they don't do that and then you've got uh, uh, over 80% who say that makes them angry when they see other people doing it so uh you know you see yeah people out there who realize these are things that are causing frustration that are getting other drivers angry and they're still doing it right at the end of the day
2: oh wow okay so we have some lessons to learn here dan thank you so much for your time no problem uh, that is Dan Arnold, the chief strategy officer at Polera. They did this very comprehensive uh, study of driving habits province by province, region by region, how people consider themselves on the road, what we think of ourselves on the road, and then what drives us crazy. And you know what? We, we all are driven crazy by very similar things. And in BC, the big thing here was people who don't signal when changing lanes or turning, like speeding and going too slow obviously big on the list too, but that signal thing, boy, sure drives us crazy, doesn't it? But let's hear from you on this. Send me at cknw.com. How do you rate yourself as a driver? And what is the one thing that you do that you know you shouldn't do, but be honest, what is it? Tell me what that is. This is Mornings with Simi. Right, there's a lot of important work and messages that are going to come out of today. It is Pink Shirt Day. And why do we need you to pay attention? Because of the work that helps out for the CKNW Kids Fund. Now, the board chair, Lara Daphne, is with us now to talk about that. Good morning and thank you for being here.
10: Good morning, Simi. Thank you for being a real champion. I know we had a great lunch last week. We did. Kicking off... Uh, you know, pink shirt day and today, today. So uh, today's the day to dress in
2: pink. That's yes, it shirt. is. Today is the day to dress in pink and to talk about all of the good work that gets done and how people can help out with that. Now, Laura, tell me in your work, like you're the the CKNW Kids Fund board chair, what kind of stories come your way?
10: Uh, wow. Uh, we have lots of stories from, from families about, uh, their children really needing help in in all areas, uh, therapies, um, uh, uh, many other areas. And but but today, uh, I want to say that what families are dealing with and kids are dealing with is really bullying. And we know that one in five kids are affected by billing. Bullying. That means we know somebody in our family is dealing with this. And I think that's why today is so important. Uh, the campaign is the largest in North America. The Pink Shirt Day CKNW Fund is the largest in North America. Uh, it creates the opportunity, I think, for conversations and awareness, Simi, and that's why today is so important. We we have to have these conversations all the time, but I think it makes us aware we need to do it more with our children. That is so true. Uh, because the impacts of bullying uh, can last, you know, years for people.
2: Oh, so true. Uh, I've spoken the Clara, uh, I'm sure yeah. you've spoken to adults too. Like you still hear it, it lasts a lifetime for people. They become scarred by this, don't they? They really do. And
10: actually one of the people I met at the luncheon last week uh, broke down in tears as she's an adult, but her brother has been dealing with this for almost 60 years. And the, the family is still affected by it. And so I think it matters what you say. And it also matters what you don't do when you see something and you don't stand up and speak out. And I think that matters. You change people's lives when you stand up uh, for, for, for boys. That's
2: true. And we see it every day. That is very true. So how can people help out today, Laura? Lara?
10: Well, today, obviously, through our fundraising, uh, we can provide much-needed resource and funding to families and organizations. Uh, since we started in 2008, we've raised $3 million in funds for anti-bullying programs. In 2023 alone, we funded programs that impacted over 45,000 children and youth. We give to organizations that know how to Um, give resources to families like the Autism Society of B.C., Boys and Girls Clubs, Big Brothers of Greater Vancouver, Big Sisters, Crisis Intervention and Suicide Prevention, just to name a few. And so any donation today will go towards anti-bullying programs, uh, prevention, and I think that's education that makes the difference.
2: Oh, that is so true. Listen, thank you so much for joining us this morning to tell us about it. Thanks, Jimmy. Have a good day. And of course you will because it's Pink Shirt Day. It is Laura Daphne, who's the CKW Kids Fund board chair, talking about the importance of Pink Shirt Day. Have you seen the t-shirts this year? They are spectacular. Now, I know we sell them at London Drugs. You can also get them online. You can go to cknwkidsfund.com. But the work that gets done because of the effort put in on a day like today, Pink Shirt Day, is amazing when you see the impact that has had on kids. So we are going to hear more actually from the Boys and Girls Club of Canada coming up a little bit later on the show because you wonder where does the money go? Oh, they can tell us in detail the difference it has made and that it makes every single day. So if you get a chance today, wear pink, you know, stop by, see the great t-shirts, pick one up if you haven't done that already. And we're going to tell you about all the good work that gets done on a day like today, Pink Shirt Day. You can get more information at cknwkidsfund.com. This
1: is Mornings with Simi.
2: We've been grappling with this problem for years now. How do we deal with the number of portables in the Surrey School District? It's approaching the number 400, which is just far 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 too many. We know that some schools are changing school hours uh, in order to, you know, squeeze more kids in, and undoubtedly this will be an issue in the provincial election later this year. In fact, some politicians are getting in on this already. We heard that BC Conservative Party leader and MLA John Rustad has pledged to eliminate the use of portables in Surrey. Uh, his idea was to make bigger class sizes. And move the kids into the school. And I thought, well, that makes for a good headline. But how realistic is this really? So joining us now to talk about this is Lisanne Foster, first vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Lisanne, thank you so much for being with us.
7: You're welcome. Good morning to me.
2: What did you think when you heard about this idea of, oh, we'll just put more kids in the classroom?
7: It's a ridiculous idea. I mean, I don't even know how anybody who knows anything about education could even entertain the idea. In order to actually think that this was, um, you know, valid in any way, you'd have to ignore a couple of things. You'd have to ignore how kids actually learn. You'd have to ignore our current uh, curriculum, which is very different from a curriculum that perhaps many politicians might be familiar with since they were in class maybe 30, 40 years ago. It's very different. And you'd also have to ignore um, our contract. We are unionized employees. We have a contract. Uh, You'd have to ignore lots of things that actually happen in schools. And I really wish politicians would spend a day in a school, one hour in each classroom before they make, any kinds of suggestions about how schools should change.
8: Oh,
2: that well, I think that's a genius idea. I mean, you've, we've got this provincial election <laughs> coming up. We know Surrey is going to be a, a centre, a focal point of the discussion here. Is that an invitation? Are you saying to politicians, come, spend an hour in one of our schools? Well, what I'm saying is,
7: if you have ideas about how to improve schools and education in Surrey, first, do some research. Come spend the day in a school, and especially schools in the north end of Surrey, which are overcrowded and under-resourced. Come and spend the day in the in classrooms before you can make, you know, assumptions about what would work and what won't work.
2: Okay, and what do you think would work? We know building schools would certainly help, but boy, that takes a long time to make that happen, doesn't it?
7: Absolutely. You know what would have been wonderful? You remember in uh, when we first went into lockdown, Um, in March 2020, um, and then in April. And social media was filled with parents making posts about how they now fully understand how difficult teaching is and how, you know, uh, how important the teacher's job is and they don't understand how teachers, you know, can teach 20, 30 kids when they're struggling to teach just two of their, their, you know, their own children. I wish that that sentiment was still alive in society. It was clear at that time that people understood just how difficult and challenging it is to to teach students, and I wish that was still alive. You know, because really, it, it there's always money for things that are prioritized. And right now, unfortunately, education is not prioritized. People, everybody's been in classrooms, and when they've been in classrooms, they just see they are sitting and then they see somebody just talking to them and it looks so easy. Look, that person's just standing there and talking. But at, you know, while the person is talking, there's like a gajillion things happening, you know, that, that happened before that, during that time. And afterwards, that is quite complicated. Whenever I teach, it feels like I'm juggling like 30 different balls while I'm also balancing on a ball that's moving at the same time and then crunched for time because i have got to do all this within, you know, 70 minutes. So it's quite complicated. And I wish people understood that.
2: You know, Lisanne, the way you just described it, I think, goes a long way towards helping the people un- to understand this. And plus, probably why not more people are taking this up as a profession, right? Because don't we have a shortage of teachers?
7: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. We do have a shortage of teachers. And you know how uh, when, when people uh, teachers are being criticized, people say, oh, you have, you know, summers off and it's so easy, you only work five hours a day. Well, if it's so easy, why aren't people running to become teachers? It's because the reality is it's not easy and also here in the lower mainland uh, as a beginning teacher you ha- you would have to have a second and a third job just in order to you know pay your bills each month because the salary here is the lowest um is amongst the lowest across across the you know the the country and so it's not attractive for young people i had um, former students who once who have become teachers and um, have recently told me, you know, just after five years they're going to um, leave because it's just impossible to make a living wow. yeah. and make a life and also maintain your mental health. So massive, massive impact on teachers' mental health, because there's so many demands coming from all different directions with very little support.
2: What is the shortage like right now? We keep hearing about this shortage, but what's it like for you?
7: So what it looks like is that on any day, there might be a 100, at least a 100 and sometimes 150 classrooms. Where the teacher is absent, or so the regular teacher is absent, and there is no um, substitute, there's no teacher on call to fill that space. And the ramifications of that filter throughout the school, there's all kinds of consequences that happen when there's not enough teachers to fill an absence. And then on top of that, there are lots of um, job vacancies that are not being filled, and them not being filled also has implications um, on the rest of the school. So schools are little communities. So if you if something is missing in one part of it, like for example, the librarian is not there, or the support teachers are not there, then it it has a kind of like domino effect in everything else in the classroom. And so teachers are n- not only dealing with complex classrooms, but then the community itself, the school community right. itself, is constantly in a deficit position because there's not enough.
2: Lizanne, given that you know, we are going to have an election this year, and clearly already we know Surrey schools and, and funding and portables, all of that are going to be issues, what, what do you want everybody to keep in mind for that? Like, this is obviously an opportunity as well for teachers to say, we want to talk about this. What would you say to these politicians?
7: Well, we know that they're going to be coming to Surrey to do several photo ops. Um, I I mean, That is just absolutely what's going to to happen. And I would like them to consider that, you know, when they go into the schools and they go into the classrooms just for the photo op, to actually spend maybe perhaps a little bit more time and find out what it's like to be a student in that school, find out what it's like to be a teacher in that school, and not just stay for the short photo op. You know, because it's I've become quite cynical now because sometimes the the announcement and the photo op is just a re announcement of something that's been announced before, and unless they're coming to announce that tomorrow there's going to be ten more schools in Surrey, everything that they're announcing is going to be just a band aid. We need a new uh, we need a new secondary school. We need several. Um, elementary schools. And unless they're announcing that, when they announce these little additions, a, a classroom here, a classroom day, it's like, you know, it's like a little teaspoon when an entire bucket is needed. Zen, thank
2: you for your time and for your honesty this morning. We really appreciate it. You're welcome to me. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. That's Lisanne Foster, who's the first vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Loved the blunt honesty, the message to politicians. Beware if you're going to use Surrey to score some kind of points in this upcoming provincial election. Uh, We heard B.C. Conservative Party leader John Rustad saying, we're going to eliminate the use of portable classrooms in Surrey. We're going to move those kids into schools. We're going to expand the class sizes And the Surrey Teachers Association says, well, that sounds ridiculous because that is just not possible. And I think that invitation that Lisanne made there is is a perfect idea. You really want to get things done in Surrey, politicians, then go and spend some time, an hour in a classroom and see how kids are learning what the challenges are. And I'll bet you'll move that higher up on the list and do What they're actually saying is make these new schools possible as soon as possible. Uh, You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, normally we are making sense of the markets with Lori Pinkowski every Wednesday morning at this time. Lori is away today, but she will be back for our regular segment next Wednesday, March the 6th. So instead today, we are going to be learning about the history of the hamburger. Why? Well, you know, some things are just woven into the fabric of North American culture. But have you ever stopped and wondered where they came from? Like the hamburger. I mean, sure, there are lots of theories about the history of it. But what do we actually know? Well, Eric Offgang decided to find out. Eric is a freelance contributor at the Washington Post, where he has written about this, actually. And is a co-author of The Good Vices from Beer to Sex, A Surprising Truth About What's Actually Good for You. Eric is with us now. Good morning. Good
0: morning. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, thank you for being here. Eric, where do you even start? If you want to start with the history of the hamburger, what's the starting point?
0: Well, you know, the starting point for me being from Connecticut was one of those, there's a number of regional stories and a number of places claim to be the birthplace of the burger. And one of them is this great burger spot in uh, Louie's Lunch. And I always feel bad when I started t- telling the story because, you know, if you ask people in Connecticut they will tell you without hesitation that the hamburger was invented um, at Louie's lunch. Um, If you look into it, you'll see a lot of stories that say it was in 1900, a customer, you know, wanted a a meal on a hurry and um, the owner of Louie's lunch improvised and and gave him this, you know, burger between two um, loaves of bread. And it's this great story that's, you know, very, you know, important to uh, many people in Connecticut. And um, you hear a lot, you know, writing about food in the state. Um, And it is, you know, that that could have happened, but that is definitely not where the, birth had, uh, <laughs> where the hamburger was invented, unfortunately.
2: Okay, so what did you find out then?
0: So, so as I started to look into it, I found out that, you know, like a lot of things, it's really hard to pinpoint. There's a lot of these different regional stories claiming it. There's um, a story out of New York. There's other stories, um, but none of them are really verified. And when you look at the record, what you can see is a sort of this kind of gradual evolution. You see um that, um, German immigrants started bringing uh, hamburger steak into um, the U.S. by the 1870s in North America. And by the 1870s, it was you know kind of common. You were seeing it um, on menus. Then you see it kind of offered with bread. And then eventually you start seeing hamburger steak sandwiches.
2: OK, that makes more sense, though. But is it really only in the last 120 or so years? It wasn't around before that?
0: Well, there and 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 that's a good point because it was even even earlier. There were things that were very similar. You know, ancient Rome has a a cookbook um, in the first century A.D. that was published that um, has a minced meat patty. Um, you know, it has crushed nuts and, and different spices, but it's also very similar. It had you know it's similar to what we would now think of as a hamburger. I, you know, obviously some differences. I, I don't think there was a you know. Catch up, and you wouldn't get a side of fries. But, you know, it, it definitely evol- evolved from that. So this idea of putting meat between, um, you know, two pieces of bread is, you know, it ha- has been with us for a long time.
2: Okay, why do we why do people like it so much? Like, did it gain in popularity for any particular reason? Or is it just kind of a slow, gradual situation?
0: You know, so when you start to see it more at, at the turn of the century, century, late 18th, 1800s it's um enjoyed by factory workers in saloons um at you know at, at people will come off a shift and grab it really quick and it really gets this reputation um as being something fun and easy to eat um initially it has kind of this sort of negative reputation this if you read the um some of the press accounts it's kind of it's You know, sort of hysterical now from a modern perspective that they're like, you know, they're eating this strange food, hamburgers and, you know, what else is going on? And um, it's all this kind of like film noir almost kind of vibe. Um, But it, it really from there, you know, just I think grows in popularity. It's fast, it's convenient, it's inexpensive and it's delicious.
2: Okay, so is that what we love about it? I, I feel like we still to this day debate the hamburger, don't we, Eric, about where is the best one? What makes the best one? Yes. And yet it really yes. is just a meat patty between two places of bread. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's very it's very it's a very straightforward food that's easy to make. Um, and you can make, you know, I can't make many good things at home, but I can make a decent hamburger.
2: But what makes a good hamburger? That's my question.
0: And, and and that's you know really a debate you know that that that's uh, you know there's people who like steam burgers there's different uh w- you know warring factions of of adherents of different um different fast food chains and yeah do you,
2: you like, know, like it, a it, smash burger really do you like a thicker patty do you like what do you like
0: yeah, and that was one of the fun things about writing this story, which was just the stories different regions of the country and of the world would tell about food, which so so important to the people in those those regions, and you know I, I think it you know tells us a lot about how kind of important food is, um, to culture and history and just our sort of. Sense of identity,
2: right? You actually found in your story that there were periods in history where there were references to things that were very similar to a hamburger, and we are talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah, early um, early seventeen hundreds, ancient Rome, um, just you know, throughout history there. There are things that are similar. Um, you know, again, it makes sense if, if if you've had, you know, bread is one of is an ancient food, and obviously humans have been eating uh, meat. And um, you know, it, like I think I say in the story, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's it's not that incredible an insight to take two things that taste good separately and be like, oh, I don't know, will this taste good on a piece of bread? And then eventually the bun came later.
2: But it's not a sandwich. See, that's the difference. Yep. That's the thing. You could be, it's not a sandwich because it's cooked. It is different. And so how did it develop as being something completely unique? Did it spread from Texas?
0: So Texas was one of the earliest references. There was also a reference in Nevada. Um, It spread, you know, it it, it seems like it was maybe, you know, the earliest I could find was a reference in Boston, but people already seemed to know what it was. It wasn't explaining what it is. You see it in, you know, sort of the big cities. Um, You know, it was in North America coming from, you know, German immigrants who were offering this hamburger steak. Um, So they were, you know, grilling up, um, you know, essentially a hamburger patty that was served, um, you know, maybe with potatoes or um, with a fork. And then, you know, again, you started seeing, oh, here's a side of bread with that. And Mm. over time you could see how they decided to let's put that on top of the bread that tastes pretty good. Let's put another loaf, uh, another piece of bread on top of that. That tastes <laughs> great, um, and you know it just kind of grows from there. And then you know the bun, and and actually Louis lunch. If you ever, you know, if your listeners ever make it all the way to uh, Connecticut in New Haven. Um, it, it, it has this very primordial burger. It, it, you could see they they will not put ketchup on it. Um, if you ask, you um, will get a dirty look. Oh. Um, and they and they serve it between two low, two slices of bread, and it, it really it's you know a different way of eating it. It accentuates the meat, um, and it it you, you really get that sort of sort of um, patty forward flavor which is interesting but you could also see why you know people over time decided to dress it up and play with it
2: all right i'm going to have to add this to my list then i'm going to have to put this on my destination list eric thank you so much <laughs> for your time Thank you for having me. That's Eric Offgang, freelance contributor at The Washington Post. He's written this really long article about the history of the hamburger. And now, if you even go online, they refer to Louie's Lunch as the first kind of fast food hamburger restaurant. It is in New Haven, Connecticut. That's what they claim. They claim to be the first fast food restaurant to serve hamburgers. But as Eric just tells us, uh, you know what? The truth might actually be more complicated than that. Isn't that always the case? We're also going to talk about Pink Shirt Day this morning, which is so important and so significant. I have a couple of guests with me right now. I have Sarah Dubois-Phillips, Executive Director of the CKNW Kids Fund, and Carolyn Tuckwell, President and CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of South Coast BC. Don't worry, I'm not giving you guys questions about Sarah McLaughlin, okay?
6: (laughs) Thank goodness. I was actually
11: proud of myself. I I mean, I think I could have answered all those questions. Thank you. Thank you for that. I was really starting
2: to doubt the questions that we had had there, but... Sarah, I want to start with you today. What is so big about today? What's so important about Pink Shirt Day?
11: Well, I mean, you know, again, Carolyn, you and I, we all know that this is our seventeenth year of running this campaign. So, honestly, yeah. I'm very happy that we're not on the street corner right now in the pouring rain. Yes, but I, I think I think what, what's so important is that, um, you know, our hashtag is lift each other up, and honestly, this year. Um, I think that, you know, really, when you lift each other up, we really see past the things that separate us. And as I said, we really focus on the things that unite us. And I'm hoping that this today that everybody just realizes that, you know, how important it is to be kind, to be compassionate, and to just really see people and respect people and appreciate everyone.
2: Yeah, that is such a great message. Now, I know, Carolyn, at the uh, BGC Boys and Girls Club of South Coast BC, you get some help from Pink Shirt Day, and we just want to know what kind, of, what kind of work goes into planning for this, and, and where does that money go?
6: Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm building on what Sarah said since since 2008. Uh, we have been recipients of the fundraising, and and we love the attention to this message. Uh, and I think more than ever right now, we think about how it's actually a collection of things we can all do right now to make the world better, starting with our own behavior. The The support that comes through Pink Shirt Day helps to fund the programs that happen throughout the year at Boys and Girls Clubs. Uh, that really help kids to develop healthy, constructive, positive relationships with it, you know, starting with themselves and then with others. Lift each other up and be kind is, is the foundation. And when we really reinforce that in childhood, which we're able to do in a targeted way because of the Pink Shirt Day funding, we're helping thousands of kids across the course of each year to really um, grow up with those ideas and practices as fundamental and as that. they show up in the world. I love
2: that. Okay, Sarah, how can people help out today?
7: Well, it's very easy.
11: You can go to our retail partner, London Drugs, and you can buy an incredible shirt that was designed by Corey Bullpit, or you can go online and make a donation on pinkshirtday.ca. But I think honestly, um, obviously raising funds is so important. And anybody that knows me is I'm always raising funds. But (laughs) honestly, it's raising awareness. I think that what is so important uh, for today and honestly every day is just being really um, mindful of how you treat other people. You know what? That is the best.
2: That is the best message. Sarah, thank you for that. Carolyn, thank you for that.
6: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: And have a great Pink Shirt Day to both of you. PinkShirtDay.ca. It is about the message today.